You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, where we are uh, still doing our distance learning, uh, where Emily's in Tahlequah and I'm in Norman. Uh, so we are still in uh, Samuel. We're just going to start chapter 15. Uh, mm-hmm. So we're having a good time there. They're not. Uh, they are about to have a really bad time because in my Bible, it says uh, the Lord rejects Saul. So that can't be good. It's it's never a good thing. I mean, there's just no way around it. And uh, we're we're entering into the the two most pivotal chapters between that transition between Saul and David. And, and we're going to be introduced uh, to David in chapter 16. Uh, we're actually going to start to see more of why Saul is the way he is and how that plays out. And everything that Saul does from this point is really going to be a reflection of his reaction to Samuel and his prophecies and and the way that God has um, kind of set the whole kingdom up under Saul. Mm -hmm. And and every every time I go through this passage or this section of the story of David and the the going from the, the transition from Saul to David, I'm always just shocked every time I look at this go, there's a lot of space devoted to the time between Saul's rejection and the rise of David. Now, I, re- I realize some of this may be going on concurrently um, with mm-hmm. stuff we've already read, but we definitely have a lot more detail than you'd expect in this transition. We really do. And that I think that's really supposed to remind us how important it is that we move, move away from that place where people are who are doing doing what is right in their own eyes. And we saw last week how Saul, he, you know, the people even affirm, do what's right in your own eyes, uh, to, to getting to somebody who can actually listen and follow God's guidance and to hear from God and someone who speaks to God. And we're going to talk about all the implications of that. I've got some great research. I can't wait to get there. Won't be this week, but, you know, stay tuned. And so, um, but, you know, when we're reading through this, we really need to keep in mind that Saul has been warned that his reign is at an end and that his son is not going to achieve the throne. And so, you know, we we can kind of make sense of his paranoia. We can make sense of the way he treats David and even Mm -hmm. his reactions uh, to Jonathan. We can understand why um, he would treat his children the way he winds up treating his children and the decisions that he makes concerning the nation. So in, in the first verse of chapter 15. Uh, We'll just read that. It says, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you, king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. So now we haven't heard from Samuel for two chapters, and now he's bursting back on the scene. There's no nice transition. It's just, he is here, and you better listen to what he says. And now, we also need to remember that Samuel has not been consulted during any of the things that's happened in the last two uh, chapters. Mm-hmm. That uh, the, one of the reasons we haven't heard from him is because Saul isn't seeking him out when Saul should be seeking him out. And so when he, when Samuel shows back up, it, he he talks with a very emphatic kind of form of the Hebrew. I was the one who sent to was sent to you. I'm the one who appointed you for God. Basically, the implication being, why in the world haven't you talked to me? Mm -hmm. What's so wrong with your reasoning skills that you can't figure out that if you weren't talking to me, you're talking to the wrong person? And remember who Saul was consulting. He's consulting the cursed sons of Eli. Samuel knows exactly what kind of men Saul has been counting on for religious uh, guidance. And so this is highly problematic. And I think we forget that because, I mean, we're in chapter um, 15 now. All of the stuff happened at the beginning of the verse, at the beginning of the book. And, you know, 
we we tend to forget, and in particular, you know, where we're going week by week, and you know, sometimes I forget what we recorded in the last episode. So I have to work at keeping that in perspective. So Samuel's words are really interesting too, because he says, "Shma lakol darari Adonai." So listen to the voice of the words of the Lord. And that that first word there in Hebrew, Shma, this is what what the title of the defining prayer of Israel is. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, listen, listen with the intent to obey. Don't just acknowledge that you kind of heard it, but actually incorporate it into your being because the fact that Israel's God is one is what makes Israel unique. It sets them apart as a nation. Mm-hmm. It, it's what defines their characteristics over and above any other neighboring um, nation, not because of who they are as a people, but because of the God they they serve. And Samuel saying to Saul, you need to listen and understand that it's God's voice. It's his words that make you unique. Yeah. And he. Yeah. No, and, and that's 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 really cool. I didn't realize that, you know. Of course, I should know. Listen, obviously, <laughs> uh, but uh, I just want to throw this out there as a great resource. You're talking about the 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 Shema and uh, the Bible Project mm-hmm. has a fantastic video on it. I don't know if you've watched it, but they actually go through. I haven't seen that one. You no, know, they go through the Shema and they take the the major words out of it. They do mm-hmm. a study on. They of course start with Shema and they go into um, the Lord. I think they go. I think they go through uh, heart soul and strength mm-hmm. and they go through all of those and talk about what what that means and 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 what it would have meant in the original language so we'll put that in the show notes it's it's a fantastic series they yeah. have one video devoted to each of the major words in the prayer I, and being the bible project i'm sure it's great and i'm pr- sure they will probably bring out how this is important when jesus actually pulls on these ideas later on in his ministry and so i mean i'm just speculating here but i'm, I'm almost confident that uh, knowing the kind of work Tim Mackey does. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Just fantastic guys. (laughs) But you know, the the, part of the idea behind what Samuel is telling uh, Saul is it was God's words that made you. And if you aren't listening to them, then you're nobody. You, You have to be relying on God's words to find your identity. And that's something that I think all of us could take to heart. If we aren't relying on God to define our identity, we're lost. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and I'm not just talking like in an eternal sense, I'm talking in our day-to-day life. We're lost yep. because we don't know how to act if we don't know who we are. And so God's words define who we are as believers. And we have to have faith in that. And I think that's what Saul, his primary problem was. He never really believed that he was the king of Israel. He didn't have to do all these things to ensure that he retained his position. Where if he had actually believed that he was king, then he could have just done the right thing. Mm-hmm. He he didn't have to to try to manipulate God to to giving him favor or blessing or any kind of victory. He could have just believed that God would be who God says he is. So uh, Samuel says, "Thus says the Lord of Hosts." So again, that 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 formulaic prophetic announcement. This is God speaking. This is not Samuel. These are His words. He says, "I have noted what the amount." what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. So we, we've got to go back and we've got to figure out who this is. Evidently, you know, Saul knew who it was. Probably everybody at that time knew who they were. So we're going to spend a little time kind of digging into them because it's going to make the story make much more sense. So we have three major references. Uh, the first one, Exodus 17, 8 through 16, Numbers 24, um, 20. Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19. And so in, in Exodus 17, 8, uh, the, the, the Amalek come out and they fight Israel at Rephidim. There's no explanation given. There's no reason for the attack. We really aren't told anymore. We just know that they, that they attack Israel. And this is the battle where Moses is on the hillside and Aaron and her are on, are on either side holding up his arms. Mm-hmm. So this is important because this is going to come back into play momentarily, but hang on to that little bit of information. In Deuteronomy 25, 17, 18, it expands the story a little more, and we find out that Amalek uh, makes an attack from behind. They, they cut off the tail is the, the terminology that's used in the verse. And what this means is, 
you know, and you can know what it means. Just stop and think about what this. If you've got a large progression of people going through the through the land, the people in the back, these are your small children. These are the women caring for small children. Mm-hmm. And these are the older people. These are the most weak and the most vulnerable because you put your warriors out front. You put the people who can defend out front. Mm-hmm. And so anybody who attacks from the back is, is not somebody that's honorable in battle. There's somebody who's willing to to sacrifice the the most the most defenseless in order to achieve a victory. And so this is what God is mad about. It, it, it's not just that they attacked Israel, but the the manner in which they attacked Israel. And God tells us in Deuteronomy that because they did this, God's going to give Israel the the um, land that belongs to Amalek. And Amalek's memory is going to be blotted out. The the next reference we have to it is in Numbers 2420. And this is Balaam's prophecy. And, you know, Balaam kept wanting to uh, curse Israel. He never could get it done. He kept having to to bless Israel. And mm-hmm. he actually speaks a curse against Amalek. And he says, Amalek was first among the nations, but its end is utter destruction. And that's all he really has to say about it. Now, there are some other verses that deal with this, like uh, Genesis 14.7, and this is Abraham's battle against the kings. And what we find there is just that one of the kings is from the land of the Amalekites. That's all it says. And that people have had a really hard time with this because we don't find out who Amalek is until later on in Genesis. And as a matter of fact, uh, that's Genesis 36.12, where we find out that Amalek is Abraham's grandson through through Esau. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. And so how did Abra- how did Abraham fight with people from a land that belonged to his, I'm sorry, his great grandson? Um, it, you know, how did the timeline work out? And you know, this is one of those things people go, oh, the Bible's contradicting itself. You can't trust it. Okay, so the simple explanation is there's more than whenever one. well. There's more than one. That's a possibility. But the other thing, and I think this is probably more it, that Genesis was written after these events occurred mm-hmm. and after the people had already dealt with Amalek. And so they knew where Amalek lived. They knew what the land of the Amalekites was. They, they didn't know possibly what the old name for that country was before the Amalekites lived there. Sure. But, you know, the writer of Genesis needed a geographic marker. This is what the people knew the land as. Mm-hmm. So we'll call it by the name they know. Or, it, it's, or possibly a scribal update. Or a scribal update. It, it's not a major mystery. And it's not a contradiction. This isn't any different than, you know, calling Istanbul Constantinople. I mean, if, if, you, if you know the history, it's like, oh, yeah, big deal. And you move on with it. Um, but it is interesting when you look in Genesis 36, 12, and you find out that, that Esau's grandson is, uh, he's born to a concubine. And the, the idea that this, this guy, Amalek, was born to a, a concubine, we're already having some issues because that's never good news in the Bible. Right. And the other problem we have is the Amalekites their family. And we've talked about the significance of some of the other enemies of Israel and how they are families, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, their their family. But actually the Amalekites are closer in as far as being family because they're direct descendants from Abraham, whereas everybody else are, are cousins. So we know that Amalek was a chief in the land of Edom. And um his mother's this concubine and we discovered in numbers 13 29 that the amalekites are living in canaan but apparently they're living alongside the canaanites they they didn't cast them out they didn't drive them out and they're fine living with the canaanites which means they're fine living with the rephaim they're okay with that Uh and that's a problem because in deuteronomy 2 we're told that um you know, Israel's not supposed to contend with the Edomites who live with at Seir because God had given the land to Edom and the Edomites had driven out the Rephaim before them. Right. And 
So that's the Deuteronomy 2.12. And so what I see the problem with the Amalekites being, not only are they, they cowards who, who attack from behind, we have this family connection. And if you came from the family of Abraham, you had knowledge of God's word, of the commands to his people. You were not ignorant. And so they, they weren't willing to uphold the family legacy. Now, I'm not saying that they are part of the covenant community as Israel was, but there is definitely something going on. They're part of a promise from Abraham to be a powerful and mighty nation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Edom and Moab and all of them, they they take part of that covenant and they do it by possessing the land, by driving out the enemies, at least in the beginning. And so evidently Amalek was not willing to do that. And so, you know, we have all the makings for a tragic um, biblical story. We've got the son of the concubine. We've got people who know who Yahweh was, but, but he, they don't uh, honor him. And a people who were given an inheritance, but failed to possess it. And so in many ways, this is kind of a cautionary tale for Israel. You don't want to be like the Amalekites. Mm-hmm. You, you need to make a distinction. But what does Israel do when they go into Canaan? I mean, that's what the whole book of Judges is about. They don't want to drive everyone out. They're happy to live alongside of everyone else. They aren't honoring God and and they aren't taking possession of their inheritance, which is God's big complaint against them. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the fact that this nation represents everything that's wrong with the nation of Israel. And God is going to use them as an object lesson to teach Israel if you're going to be my people, you don't get to act like this. And so we we miss that because, you know, we just hear, oh, well, you know, it's an enemy of Israel. They got to be horrible people without right. recognizing their descendants of Abraham also. So <clears throat> one moment, please. No, go ahead. It's uh, still allergy season in Oklahoma. So the... Um, Amalekites are devoted to harem. They're they're de- devoted to uh, destruction, and this is problematic for so many people. And and you know I get it. it it's barbaric. Uh, it, it's violent. It, it you know there's so many lives that are lost, and it's not just warriors. It, it's women. It's children. It's animals. It seems like an over the top response from God against His enemy, and. So I wanted to look at that just a little bit to kind of help us understand why this is a significant concept and what's going on here. Because, you know, I don't think you've got any kind of compassion if it doesn't bother you. Right. But at the same time, we, we have to to try to step out of our kind of um, our worldview and our experience and try to understand what God's doing here. So Haram is more than killing. It's the devotion of someone to God and to God alone. And, and it, you know, it's kind of not to make too light of the matter, but it's kind of like the old joke that, you know, kill them all and let God sort them out. That's kind of what's going on here in a ways. But um, Michael Heiser, if y'all guys haven't um, noticed, we're, we're huge fans. Yeah. He um, writes. <laughs> yeah. He writes in his book, The Unseen Realm. And this is on page 203. He says, in the view of biblical writers, Israel is at war with enemies spawned by rival divine beings. Coexistence was not possible with the spawn of other gods. So this is one of the reasons why I'm really big on that divine council worldview. It's not just because I like crazy odd things. I do, but that's not why. Right. It's because it solves so many theological problems. When we read this, as a divine war, a war between Yahweh and lesser gods, and the fact that he is not going to allow these lesser gods to to infect his people. Mm-hmm. Now it's not an act of violence against someone. It's an act of defense for Israel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we as Christians, we don't recognize that we, we fully support this idea. We love this idea. As long as it's only done on a spiritual level, uh, level, this is what spiritual warfare is all about. Mm-hmm. It's saying we don't want evil to infect our lives and we're willing to stand against it and, and proclaim God's victory over it. At this point in time, 
spiritual warfare was not an abstract concept. It was a concrete reality within the lives of these people. And by the way, that that word Harem is built on the same root as Hermon, which is the mountain that the book of Enoch tells us that the fallen angels from Genesis 6 are, are locked beneath. Mm-hmm. So all of this is interconnected back with Genesis 6. It's all interconnected back with Babel. And, and when you begin to to hold the, all these things in tension, suddenly it's not this this appalling mass genocide. It, it, it is actually mercy. And the other thing we should point out that there are only seven nations, seven people groups from within Canaan, not all the Canaanites, just seven that were subject to this. And that was only if they stayed. Excuse me. That's only if they stayed. And that's only if they became violent against the nation of Israel. Mm-hmm. And so when God gives, and of course, when God gives commands, he knows what people are going to do. Because what happens when you put holiness in the midst of a wicked setting? Then the, the holy people get attacked. Right. That's that's just, you know, facts. Sure. And so, and Amalek wasn't included in that people group until after they attacked Israel. So that's, they they don't become part of that ban, that devotion to destruction in, until Numbers 13. Mm-hmm. And so we find out, by the way, the jingling is Ty's dog, Jackson. Sorry about it, guys. He lives here. There's not much I can do. Uh, okay. But anyway, uh, in Joshua 11, uh, 21 through 22, we're told exactly what Hiram was, was, why it was practiced, what the purpose of it is for. So I'm going to read those verses as soon as I get a drink. It says, And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them, Hiram, to destruction, with their cities, that none of the Anakim were left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza and Goth and in Ashdod did some remain. So the purpose of this practice is to cut off the Anakim. And the Anakim are part of the Rephaim, who were the descendants of the of the Nephilim. Right. Say that three times fast. Just and just so, so we're perfectly clear. And if you remember <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Because if you don't follow those genealogies back, then you have no idea that this is a supernatural nation. This is not just people we're talking about. This is these are beings that when they are killed, that the um, book of Enoch and the book of Jubilee say become demonic spirits. So these are not the kinds of things you want in your life. And if you if you think, well, there should have been more mercy. Now, ask yourself, for those of you who have ever experienced anything with the demonic realm, do you think they need mercy? Do you think they deserve kindness? You know, their, their intent is to destroy. Right. And so this w- these weren't disembodied spirits at this point. These are people who fully embody that kind of evilness. So if. If you remember the passages uh, about the ark, when the, the ark was taken by, um, who took the ark? Taken by the Philistines. You'll, you'll remember the cities named Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. These were all part of that narrative. Mm-hmm. And so these are the places where we still have the Anakim living. And they would have been impacting the Philistines because remember the Philistines, they adopt some of the cultural practices. They intermarry in with some of the nations. Mm-hmm. The one nation they don't do this with, Israel. Right. Because they know that's a totally different kind of people than what they are. And so Gath, by the way, we're going to find out later. This is the home of Goliath. Sure. Where the giants still live. So Basically, the point of Kharam is not to um, not to kill people. Yeah, well, it's not a land grab, which I think is right. what a lot of people assume is going on uh, whenever they do read it yes. uh, without the, the idea of the supernatural backdrop is that, oh, well, they've decided it, they, they probably I've heard, you know, heard assumed it's just it's a land grab that Israel decided that they needed more land. And so that's. That's what well, I've heard I, as, a, as that, an excuse. 
Well, and that's very popular. And what's what's interesting is, is whenever this is actually enacted, part of the prohibition is you don't take anything. Uh I mean, you, you, yes, the land is there, but none of the gold, none of the animals, you don't intermarry with any of the women, you don't take their slaves. Mm -hmm. And it's to remind them this is not a human war. The spoils of this war go to God. Why? Because it's not a war for human benefit. It's a war for God on God's behalf. And it is a war between the gods, little g, godlets there. And so God actually built in this component that's supposed to to remind people this isn't for them. Right. Now, do they benefit if they do they benefit from it? Absolutely. Because now they're protected. They aren't going to be tempted to to um, worship these other gods. They're not going to be tempted to intermarry with the other family. And it also stops the intrinsic violence of these cultures from becoming a part of Israel's day to day life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think any of us with half a brain know we don't want to live with you know neighbors that are always warring against us. And right. you know, this isn't a neighbor who's calling the cops because your radio is too loud. This is a neighbor who says, hey, I want your cow. So I'm going to kill you and your kids so I can have it. And so. Right. Well, and, and also you were talking about um, the, just destroying everything, the, you know, not taking any of the plunder for themselves. Um, that's actually, uh, I think we mentioned it earlier, where uh, you would do that uh, so that you would make sure you weren't, you weren't getting any of the animals that were used in cultic practices or any of the taking any of their idols and trying to adopt them as your own. Yeah. And that's the thing. It, it's not it, it really is. I mean, we know what quarantine means now. All of us know what that means so well. This is basically quarantining the 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 spiritual sickness and not allowing it to, to come into to the, the nation. And you want to cut off all avenues of that. And so the other thing that's kind of interesting about the Amalekites is not only are they cowardly fighters because they attack from behind, they they never seem to fight on their own. They seem to join in with other people. Uh, In Judges 3, they're with the Ammonites. In Judges 6 and 7, they join with the Midianites. In Judges 10, they're with the Sidonians. So they they tend to, to just kind of glom on to whoever thinks they think is going to benefit them. And they really don't have an identity of their own, which that would make an interesting study there. Being plus some, um, some, some principles for today about the fact that they should have been acting as descendants of Abraham and yet failed to. Mm-hmm. And so they wind up falling in with the wrong crowd, but we won't go there. Uh, Psalms 83 describes the nations who, who plot against God and against Israel in an attempt to take the land from Israel. And Amalek is one of the nations mentioned. And, you know, when you when you realize all the background, now it's not so, it, it's not so distasteful because now we're recognizing it as a plot of intelligent evil to destroy God's will. I mean, they're trying to cut off the promise given back in Genesis 3 that God is going to send a, a, a Messiah who's, going to crush the head of the Nakash, the the enemy of, of intelligent evil. Mm-hmm. And so, but you did bring up the point about the animals and why were the animals? It's like, okay, okay I get it. Yeah, we, we can kill, you know, enemies who are embodied, but what about creatures? So like you said, there, there's the ones that have possibly been devoted for a cultic duty that they would have been set aside to be offered as a sacrifice later on. Right. They could have even been uh, actually worshipped as a representative of a foreign god, and so you don't want that. They could have been used in bestiality. Again, don't want that. But my favorite, okay, so I had to throw this in because it amused me so much. The rabbis taught that the reason why the animals had to be killed was because the Amalekites were shapeshifters and they would take on the form of the (laughs) animals to escape. And come on, you're not doing vampire stuff last week, but you're going to do this. I I had to. I mean, (laughs) where did they get that? Like, (laughs) well, you know, I I, I don't understand all of it and I'm not I'm not going to make any definitive claims, but there has always been this idea that evil can take on the form of an animal mm-hmm. and i think we do get that from the garden of eden where we have the nakash and and we 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 you know there's still some debate whether it was an actual snake or if it's an 
a spirit speaking through a snake or it was a spirit that was embodied in a way that kind of resembled a snake. And, you know, I don't care. The, it happened. That's all I, you know, that's, yeah, yeah. that's all I care about. And so, it, but it's, it, it, there is, like I said, the idea that, that evil people and, you know, we can be, talk about witches and their familiars. We can talk about vampires turning into bats, mm -hmm. uh, werewolves, uh, and that there is this, this idea that, that evil is sneaky. It's subtle. And, yeah. you well, know, and that's, that's actually, uh, that's where the, the rabbit's foot comes into is that, that people used to think that witches would turn into, into rabbits. And so. <laughs> that you would carry a, a rabbit's foot with you to prove that you were able to kill a rabbit to ward off witches. <laughs> yeah, kind of a crazy one. And, uh, yeah, I always thought that was weird, you know, carrying a dead animal's foot around with you. I'm whatever. I, but yeah, no, that I, I'd forgotten about that. So, but all of, uh, all of this to say that the only way that we can even begin, or at least for me to even begin to say, I'm cool with what God did in Canaan. I'm fine with the fact that nations were destroyed is if I look at it from a supernatural worldview. And I think in doing so, we kind of disarm a lot of the arguments about God's, you know, meanness and cruelty in the Old Testament. And especially if we reframe it in the in the fact that he is defending his people and he's a good daddy. I mean, you, you, and I think you've got to look at it that way, too. A good dad protects his kids before he cares about the neighbor's kids. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, you know, can you care for the neighbor's kids? Absolutely. But uh, if the neighbor kid hurts your kid, you're going to go to a beat down on their dad. I mean, well, maybe not. So some of us are more civilized than me. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so verse four um Saul summons the people to be numbered at Telaim. And the numbering of people in God's nation is never good. It's always going to have bad results because it shows a lack of faith in God's ability to actually accomplish no matter what the numbers are. And, and Saul should have known this. He should have known the story of Gideon. And, you know, and also what happened in his own life just a chapter or two back. God will defend and bring the numbers that need to be brought to achieve victory. Mm -hmm. We don't have to, you know, make sure do we have enough people in place before we can obey God. We just need to obey. Yeah. And so. And, and if there's not enough people, you know, he might send a calamity or something like that, like we've seen before. <laughs> or, you know, the, the angels, the armies of angels show up. That happens. And right. so by, by stepping out and saying, God told me to do this, so I'm going to do this. Now, now we're acting in faith. But we all know that's not Saul's uh, strong point. And, and Talaim actually means that it's a spot where sheep are tied. And so the rabbi said, well, you know, Saul didn't actually count the people because that would have been wrong. But all the people brought one sheep or one lamb and he counted the lambs. <laughs> so, everyone, I'm not going to count you, but if everyone can just drop, uh, <laughs> drop a sheep well, here, we'll make sure that, yeah. And it's kind Loophole. of interesting. To, well, and that's the thing. And with the rabbis, I'm always surprised at how often they try to find a loophole for Saul. Right. They, they they really seem to like Saul. And I, I'm i always confused by that. And I, I don't understand why that is. But uh, some of the ways that they have come up with to, to justify his behaviors, it, you know, they're amusing. So, um I, I would have been fine with Andy Dwyer. I, say, I would have been fine with Andy Dwyer, Saul, but this one I'm, you know, not so fond of. Yeah, he's uh, he's got some of his problems, and we're going to continue to see some more. But uh, we we find out that he's got two hundred thousand men on foot. So I mean, this is huge. I mean, we've gone from six hundred to two hundred thousand, and we have ten thousand men of Judah. And we almost always have the men of Judah counted separately because we know what's going to happen with Judah. We know that they're going to take over the kingship. And so we want to, to remember what a mighty tribe they are. And, and we're kind of building the anticipation for when they finally step into the reality of who God says they are. Well, I'm, I'm, and, curi I'm curious too about the, the men of Judah being counted um, because we are talking about transitioning later over into David. So I, I am curious uh, mm -hmm. when it mentions them, are we mentioning them because we're, we want to say, Hey, Judah was there doing their job. 
we they weren't mm-hmm. plotting to become the 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 replacement for for Saul. This is just we were doing the right thing all along and trying to you know like wash their hands of any uh, conspiracy theory type thing. There, that, that's a huge part of it, and that's exactly. And, and we see that we saw that back in Judges too. Whenever we went against, or we uh, when the people went against Benjamin, and yeah. you know you get, and we've got to remember that Judah and Benjamin were at odds in in the last part of Judges, and again, not that far removed. And so for Judah to actually be, uh, you know, submissive to a, a Benjaminite king. It is telling you where their hearts are and that they are with the nation. They don't uh, they don't see themselves set apart as independent of the nation and they're willing to obey God at this point. Yeah. And so God appointed the king. They're going to listen to the king and they're going to follow the king. So, yeah, you're absolutely dead on because we need that reminder that the, that Judah is not attempting to take over at this point. And a matter of fact, it wouldn't make sense in a lot of ways for them to be the ones who want to take over. Cause if you remember back in Samson's story, when Samson was causing problems with the Philistines, who was the one who came out and said, you need to cut this out, quit, quit making trouble for us. It's Judah. Mm-hmm. So Judah was kind of okay with the status quo. Uh, and, and they weren't just real, they, they weren't huge leaders at this point is what I'm trying to say. They, they aren't somebody who's going to step out and take a risk at this point. Yeah. So, the the idea of them wanting to to take over power, you know, does that come about? Oh, yeah, we're going to see that later on. But it's kind of after they've seen, oh, David is the king. David's the one that God has appointed. And they kind of they begin as a tribe to to step into the identity. And there's a new boldness about them that you don't see before. And sometimes they take it too far and sometimes they aren't well measured with what they do. But that's a whole other story. So uh, but yeah, so I I think that's a pretty good. Um, pretty good observation and we need to remember that there is a schism that's still still very much a part of the nation at this point yeah so but verse six um saul before he attacks the amalekites he he warns the canaanites and he tells them hey you need to leave the amalekites you need to to get out and the reason why he does this is the reason cited is for the kindness to all the people of israel when they came up out of Egypt. So quick recap, uh, the Canaanites were the the descendants of Jethro, uh, Moses' father-in-law. Mm-hmm. And so now remember I told you that it was going to be important to remember that the Amalekites were the ones who were involved in, in that, um, that battle where Moses had to have his arm supported. Right. So that's Exodus 16. Exodus, Exodus 17 is when Jethro comes to Moses and he says, what you're doing is too heavy. You can't do it. And he's not talking about holding his arms up in battle. He's talking about Moses being the leader of the people. Right. And so we have this physical uh, enactment of how heavy the leadership burden is in this battle against the Amalekites. And then you have Jethro who says, there's more than just the physical going on here. We actually, you, this is an emotional toll. This is a, a mental toll. And you're going to need people to support you beyond just in this battle. You're going to need people who are at your side all the time. And so the, Jethro becomes the one who says, hey, let's you know, find your, your men, find the guys that you can count on. Let them handle the small stuff and you handle the big stuff. And so this is the reason um, that they are cited. and the the fact that Jethro's presence is noted right after their first encounter with the Amalekites, and then we're remembering it again here in Samuel, then we we have this really interesting kind of replay of events. Mm-hmm. And so you you also have the, this sharp contrast between the the character and nature of the Canaanites and the Amalekites. The Amalekites want to destroy, the Canaanites want to support. And the Canaanites, they um, they travel with the Israelites through the um, through the desert. And Moses actually makes this promise in Numbers 10, 29 and 32. He says, whatever good God does for Israel, God will do for the Canaanites. So Moses sees that they're that the Canaanites kindness and their goodness to Israel it really does. It qualifies them to to fall under this protection of God. 
And so whenever we hear these things about, oh, well, you know, it's so horrible what, what Israel did to all these other nations. If you don't want to be treated like that, then then stop treating Israel this way. When the Canaanites supported Israel, they, they get included. And so much to the point that the first king, when he goes out to attack the enemies of Israel, he's going to make sure you're taken care of. And yeah. Yeah. and I want to make I want to make sure we're. We, we clarify, we're talking about in the biblical narrative. We're not talking about some mm-hmm. kind of dispensationalist <laughs> view or, or you know, if, uh, uh, the eschato- eschato- esch- eschatological <laughs> uh, theories of, of how we should be treating Israel today. Now, granted, be nice to everyone, but, you know, <laughs> we're not trying right. to, to uh, start that kind of political schism. That's, we're not commenting on that. Yeah, right. And at this point, God is preserving this nation for the purpose of bringing a Messiah. This is all to get Jesus here. Yeah. And so this is the reason why there is such a battle, because guess who doesn't want Jesus here? And so but it's it's interesting to me that we do have the, this contrast set up of the Amalekites and the Canaanites, because we begin to see that God's grace and mercy will cover anyone mm. who who takes his word seriously. Who, who is going to be loyal to him. And one of the ways that you demonstrate you're loyal to God is to be loyal to his people. And, you know, if we want to bring that forward. Uh, this isn't replacement theology, but the idea that, you know, be nice to other Christians. Good grief. It's simple. Um, yeah, well, and, and I also like, uh, I like looking at this too, because I do feel like we have been given a, a, a bad view of how theology works. And, and mm-hmm. particularly before Christ. And the, you know, and this is, this is just growing up and I'm not saying it was like malicious, but I think there was just not a lot of teaching about this when we were growing up that, you know, we, we had a lot of, we had the impression from a lot of people that, oh, only people from Israel were saved or were going to heaven or could worship God. Mm-hmm. And, yes. and if you, actually look at it there are other nations who are worshiping god along with israel mm-hmm. and so I, uh, melchizedek <laughs> yeah it, it, and so when we <laughs> yeah so when we actually look at it we kind of go oh god's mercy is greater than the picture that's been painted for us in a lot of church settings growing up uh, absolutely. And, you know, we can also look at the fact that Caleb, Othniel and Jael, they're all Canaanites mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they play pivotal roles in the protection and the formation of the nation. And so to to say that God, God doesn't care about anyone who's not part of Israel, that, that's a misnomer. It's misleading. And I think we need to to clarify that, because by clarifying that, we're also counteracting the lie that we've been told that God's just this big mean uh, bully mm-hmm. and that's not it's not who he is and you know we see that again right here because when Saul gets ready to attack he he at least goes in and says hey guys get out of there we're, we're coming in and so we're told nothing about the battle we're, we, no details we only know that Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah to Shur. So, you know, it's he pretty extensive area. And then this is where the story gets more detailed and it starts to pick up steam because this is the important points that are getting ready to, to be revealed. And verses eight and nine, we're told that Saul only applies the haram, the, the utter destruction to was worthless and despised. And he spares the best of the flocks and mm-hmm. he spares the king. So now under Haram, the, the what is destroyed is devoted to God. So think about that for a moment. What they gave to God from that battle was the worthless and despised. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they kept the best for themselves. And that's, you talk about a slap in the face. That that is total disrespect. Yeah. Well, and and this is often taught because we don't have that idea of of what her, that harem was this devotion to God. Um, you know, I never even realized that until the last you know year or two when we're looking at this stuff mm-hmm. that 
that it was to be devoted to God because we growing up I was always told, well, he got in trouble because he just didn't listen. But it it is a lot deeper than right. oh, he just right. didn't listen. Yeah, he he is 100% just being disrespectful and that that's what it boils down to. He he's being disobedient, but he's being disobedient in a way that you just don't do when you're dealing with the God of the universe. Yeah. So if you're hearing some clinking in the background, my husband has awoken. So uh, <laughs> but verses 10 and 11, um, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and cried to the Lord all night. And so sometimes this is translated I repent that I have made Saul king. Mm -hmm. And so theological problem. So you know, might as well stop and deal with it. Yay. How can God regret? How, <laughs> how can God <laughs> repent of anything he said? Does this mean God made a mistake? Oh, no. Um, we only find this word in this form in one other place in the Bible, and that's Genesis 6, 7, and it's before the flood when God regrets or repents of making humanity. Mm -hmm. So, and this is, e but this is even more of a problem in this chapter, because in verse 29, Samuel says that it, his words are, and also the glory of Israel will not have, will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. So it's like Samuel is completely contradicting himself and completely offering opposing views of God within the same chapter. And so, yeah, how do we sort this at this little tangly knot? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so that's what I'm wondering. I hope you have something yeah. good. <laughs> I do. I do. <laughs> um, so Samuel, um, his experience with God is that God regrets and grieves making Saul a king. Uh, and you got to remember, Samuel's a prophet. A prophet feels God's heart. A, a prophet experiences the emotions with God. Um, but the the thing is, in verse eleven here, it, it's nacham uh, is the the ver the verb that's being used, and it, it it does describe that emotional response. It, it describes that feeling that that can happen within a person or within God, and we know that God has emotions. We're told that all over Scripture. I mean, good grief, Jesus weeps when Lazarus dies, and he is God. And so we need to be okay with him having emotions. And that's what Samuel in this moment, when he's talking, he's talking about that emotional, relational experience with God, where the two of them have sat down and they have just been utterly destroyed emotionally by a failure of someone that they hoped or had planned or, you know, wanted to succeed. Mm -hmm. And so when we're talking in, in verse 11, we're talking about that emotional moment. And then when we get over to the verse later, where you know, Samuel saying, who is God that he should have a regret? You know, God's not a man. Now we're talking in about an official function. We're, we're talking about a, um, about a, a declaration from that throne of the, the creator of the universe. And, and he's not saying that God doesn't have a regret. I mean, who is God? That, I mean, when you read the, the words there, you can see that he's saying, I'm not going to have a regret. It's pretty much what he says. I'm not going to regret leaving you here when you've already proven that you you weren't going to stand up and do the right thing. Gotcha. I, <laughs> I, I don't have to continue with this. Yeah. I mean, it, it's once Sam, uh, once Saul had his chance and he blew it, then we have a whole different situation than when Saul was given the option. So when God steps forward as God in his glory and he makes this declaration against Saul from this official position, there is no room for emotion. And, you know, I think anybody who's ever been in charge of anything, uh, give an example. So uh, we've got the Facebook group Scandalous on with that's just women. We deal with a lot of very emotional topics and we get some very real moments in, in there. And, you know, occasionally we'll get somebody in who 
they're a troublemaker. I, I mean, there's just no other way to put it. And we can see, you know, we got a really smart group of women running this this group uh, with a lot of background in helping other women. And we can see why they're the troublemaker. We can see what has caused them to say this or do that or you know, make this insult or, you know, be insensitive. And, and we want to help this person who's been making trouble. But at some point, not too often, but occasionally, we have to set aside that that compassionate response and say we have to protect our the rest of our group mm-hmm. who is here operating in good faith. And so, so as leaders of the group, we can't we can't hang on to this emotion. And so we have to to decide where are we going to draw the line? And I think that's kind of what we're seeing here with God. Are, are we being heartless when we kick the other person out? In some ways, it can seem like that. But at the other time, it can seem like compassion. So God is saying, in my compassion for the nation as a whole, I can't have compassion for you as a person. You 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 blew it. Yeah. The rest of the people still have a chance. Uh, that makes sense. So, and, it, and, and it's kind of like, and, well, I, I, and think, I think it's, well, to me, it kind of sounds like the difference between experiencing a regret and then letting that regret dictate your actions, is, if that right. makes sense. Well, and I think we forget that, you know, God has never denied the right to have an emotion. <laughs> Nobody, you know, he never places that restriction on himself. And we certainly don't have the ability to apply it to him. Mm-hmm. And God has a full, infinite range of emotions. And so to say that he doesn't experience any of them or, or is above them, I, I think that's just a way of trying to limit an infinite God. And that's where we run into problems. That's when theology starts getting really messed up. Yeah. Well, and I want to clarify before anyone jumps on us about the, <laughs> to say that he's, to say that he's above them, saying that he's above experiencing them, not that he is ruled by them because he is, right. he, he is above them in the sense that he's not going to just be capricious with, you know, <laughs> with his character. Well, and, and that's the thing. It is a very nuanced idea. And so sometimes we as Christians, we, we, we get lazy and we don't like nuance. We, we don't like having to have that balance in our theology that requires us to actually stop and look at God or, or things of God and you know, take all the little considerations into play. We, we just want a black and white um, proclamation and to be done with it. Mm-hmm. And that's not what God offers us. God offers us story. He offers us narrative. And in doing so, he he's saying, I'm above your little cliches. I, I don't need your little cliches to tell me who I am. And, you know, if God is not going to allow our cliches to define him, then why is that how we keep trying to identify and interact with him? Get a clue. Okay. Sorry. Um, so the, Well, there you have the, it. The the uh, <laughs> I'm just it's one of those things that irritates me but one of the things that too in this word um some people might be interested in this and um, there's arguments against it I'm one of the few people who've studied the language who actually supports this idea and that's when you go back to the the pictographs uh, of ancient Hebrew the the pictures that became the letters of the block Aramaic script they all mean something mm. and uh you can put them together and you come up with with this um with a word that means it has a greater concept and uh so a lot of like i said linguistic scholars reject this i i actually see it and i think part of it's because i'm an artist and so i tend to think very abstractly sometimes and this word is formed with a noon a chet and a mem and the the noon is a seed. It's the beginning, the start. A chet is a um, is a fence. It's a divinity line. It's a boundary. And a mem represents chaos. And so when you put the two together, whenever you have this word for regret or repent, it's to begin to separate from chaos. And I love that because it, it really begins, it, I, I think it gives you a good picture of what repentance really looks looks like mm. that you step away and step out of chaos and you actually return to that ordered place that God has proclaimed is right and it's good because God's always in the business of bringing order to chaos and so he he sets that boundary on chaos and says no further and so 
for us as believers, you know, I think sometimes we need to kind of have those pictures in order to to figure out what this means in our life. So for us, you know, sometimes repentance really is going, you know, hey, that's chaos. And I don't need that as as part of my life. And so um these these are these are the fun little tidbits that that I really uh like. And I think a lot of this really comes down to uh when we read this chapter with this regret or repentance, we have this distinction too of a conversation with a friend where God's talking to Samuel and explaining how he feels, and then that that formal uh, pronouncement mm-hmm. as a king. So, um, and we and we've seen this, um, we've seen this pattern before with um, Eli, and back in First Samuel uh, chapter two, when the man of God came to warn Eli about the fate of his sons. And then there's this interlude where uh, where God kind of lets Eli do his own thing. We alluded to it last um, a last episode, and you know the the final pronouncement doesn't come until later. And you know, the the idea that God had already told Saul, "Hey, you know you aren't going to get to keep the kingdom," but then we're here in this next chapter, and it's like it's a brand new revelation for Saul that he it has to be told again, and it's there's this is another point where people who like to critique the bible say oh well here's the contradiction which time did god take this kingdom away from saul both uh it's not an either or i god originally provided this first correction and and said hey it's a done deal but it that doesn't always mean it's a done deal and let me give you an example of that jonah 3 4 jonah says to the city of nineveh Yet in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. There's no if-then formula in there. It, it's it's not specifically spoken. It's implied. Right. And so what do we know happens with Nineveh? They repent. They get their acts together. They start fasting. They start praying. So, yeah, they, uh, they humbled themselves. They repented. Uh, and uh, God, you know, saved them and spared uh, the city, including the cattle, which uh, I think it's funny that even it says even the cattle repented, which is funny <laughs> to me in the book of Jonah. I think a lot of people notice that. I hadn't noticed that the cattle repented. I, I believe it does. I'll have to, I'll have to double check. But it's like the last verse is like all the people and the cattle repented and were saved. Now that poses some crazy theological ramifications. Oh, I know. And it's 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 one of those things that's just funny. Of course. And I think we've mentioned this before, but I love that Tim Mackey, of course, he, he has a great series on this. And he talks about how the, the whole thing is basically like political, it, the religious political satire. Uh, it, and it's just told in an over the top way. Oh, it's, it's, it's a great book. And, and I love the way it is presented. But so, anyway, but yeah, that that's uh, either here. I, I think I'm getting away from your point. Where were you? And we also see where where David subverts a prophetic warning when mm-hmm. he repents. So the idea that repentance can actually change prophecy and what will happen is is interwoven throughout the entire book. Yeah, and don't we it, see it's that, throughout the entire Bible. Yeah, don't we also see that with Isaiah and one of the kings that he warns? Uh, Hezekiah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As and so in the idea that when God makes a decree, it's final. It is partially true but and it's usually i mean god has the power to make anything happen just because he decrees it but the other side of it is god is intensely relational god is constantly responding to the prayers and the needs of his people and we need to appreciate that side of him and stop acting like it's some kind of flaw and I think we see that with a lot of uh, theology that's out there today, the, this idea that, that God could change his mind or God could could adjust his approach because of a, the way a person approaches him. Uh, God's all about grace. And mm-hmm. sometimes grace means making allowances to or making the attempt to speak a language the person knows and can understand. And, and you know, God has shown that he's willing to go to the most extreme measures in order to reach people. And so I don't understand why this is baffling to people to, to think that God may actually say, Hey, I'm going to work with you here and I'm going to figure out a way to, to make this known to you. 
And, and at the same time, if you want to walk away from it and you don't want to honor or pay attention to the warning I'm giving you, that's on you too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't impact God's sovereignty and it doesn't mean that God is less than. It just means that he's willing to give us every chance to turn back to him and it's up to us to respond. So, um, you know, it, it, it's amazing that he would be willing to do that. And it's not glorifying humanity. It's actually very humbling. And we should be ashamed of ourselves that we don't respond more quickly and more completely than what we do. Yeah. So, but um, I'm going to finish up. I think we're almost out of time. I just want to hit the end of this verse. Samuel cries out to the Lord all night. Uh, he is angry with Saul that Saul would, would fail God. Uh, as that prophet, he feels the hurt that, that God feels over Saul. Notice that God is repenting. He's regretting. This, this has the connotation of sadness. This is not angry wrath. Mm-hmm. This, this is brokenness. Yeah, well, And I think we forget that. Yeah, well, and I also think it's interesting because you have, uh, you, we don't often talk about this, but Samuel, uh, in the midst of this, he, he didn't want to make Saul king. But then when, when Saul is rejected, he, mm-hmm. he's upset about it. He experiences that same kind of regret, um, like you just mentioned. But we see that Samuel has gone from wanting, not wanting Sam, uh, uh, Saul to even be in the place to, mm-hmm. to, grieving that he's failed even though he didn't want him there to begin yeah i mean so so samuel's taken his own uh journey as it were well and i think too because samuel is with saul and i think at the very beginning there there was this interdependence there was this kind of uh reliance of saul on samuel and samuel invested a lot of himself in saul's success Mm-hmm. He didn't have to support him. He could have just anointed him and gone, okay, now I'm going to go. Yeah. But he he was actually in that speech that he gave at, at Saul's coronation. You need to listen to the prophet. He, he set up the paradigm. We are a team. We work together. You cannot separate the two offices. If you don't have one, you are not going to have the other. So he, he set that up because he wanted to be a part. And, and you know, some of it, God probably decreed too, but I think Samuel really had a a personal investment in being a part of the leadership and making sure that the leadership did remain loyal and obedient to God. And so, when you've helped someone, even you don't, it's even someone you don't particularly care for, or you think maybe shouldn't be in a certain position, or but even you've someone still, who's completely messing it up. <laughs> yeah, but if you've been there and you've been on their side and you've been trying to help them succeed, it's going to hurt when they fail. Yeah, and 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 I do kind of see this. uh, To me, it kind of seems like uh, what you're saying is seems like Samuel started out with kind of going, "Well, I'm going to be here as prophet and guide to try to make the best of a bad situation," and Mm -hmm. then, um, you know, I think he he actually got to where he actually did like Saul uh, through this. So, I think I think he liked Saul as a person. I think he had a problem with him being a king. And, you know, I, I, I've had those situations with people. It's like, I like this person as a, as a person. They shouldn't be in that position. No, I, I totally <laughs> get that. So, And I think Saul was able, I mean, Samuel was able to make that distinction with Saul. And so, you know, again, real people, real situations. Mm-hmm. They're not living in some kind of cartoon universe or even some kind of fairy tale universe. This is all the complexities of the world that we know. Mm-hmm. because it's the same world they inhabit yep so yeah <laughs> so i think that's probably a good place to to break because samuel's going to get up in the morning and he's going to go talk to saul yeah and that's going to be all kinds of interesting so anyway well everyone out there i uh, hope you enjoyed what you heard today um we are going to be back next week and we'll figure out what uh samuel has to say to saul um lots of s words um <laughs> going on um that i didn't mean that but <laughs> <laughs> so i don't know maybe well, well. you know metaphorically it works <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway um thanks for joining us if you liked what you heard please uh share it with a friend um if you didn't like it yeah, share anyway you might as well right um but 
you know, if, if you do want to be part of the conversation, hit us up on Raven Creek SC on the social media, uh, Raven Creek SC.com. You can hit us up on the website. And, um, if you haven't, uh, please again, just rate us on iTunes, give us a review and that helps us out probably more than just about anything else. Um, Absolutely. So I want to say thanks again for being here and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.